Oh, Father, we come to you, the God of the universe, the one who is before time, the one who has created time. And Father, in your divine grace and wisdom, you sent your Son, who willingly went to the cross on our behalf. Father, we live in a world that is aching, is hurting. We live among a sinful people. Your son's name is reserved for swear words rather than exaltation. The confusion that swirls around who you are and who your son is. Father, we just ask that as we go to the text this morning, may once again we be reminded of who came, who stood before the religious rulers and before the Roman governor Pilate and went willingly to the cross when he easily could have called down a whole host of angels to wipe out the adversary. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word and we praise you in Jesus name. Amen. Well, if you would turn to Luke chapter 22. If you have just joined us, we have been moving through the gospel of Luke and it fits so well with the timetable of our passion week that we're about to enter and and Luke 22 is where we are. As you turn there, verse 63 is the text that we we will begin with this morning. I've had folks say, oh, you should try red velvet cake. You know, if you've ever had it as a donut or a, a muffin or even a cake at a restaurant, I said, no, you don't know anything about red velvet cake until you have my wife's red velvet cake. <laughs> my wife has the original Waldorf Astoria red velvet. She's tweaked it over the years. Trust me, I've ate several cakes and I can, that is a red velvet cake, right? And there are many who think, uh, I know who Jesus is. In fact, in a, in a recent survey conducted in 2020, 62% of American adults believe that Jesus is not God. What's more alarming, nearly one-third that took that survey are self-proclaimed evangelicals, and they too said, no, Jesus is not God. One-third, nearly. And then you add to that mix those who espouse an orthodox view of Jesus or of God, and they find themselves when a major roadblock hits in their thinking and those difficult times come, and they begin to question all of this. I remember having the chance to hear Elie Wiesel, who wrote The Night. He was an orthodox Jewish lad who was sent to the concentration camp And he wrote in the night, he said, after seeing the horrors of the Holocaust that was being unleashed, he said he lost his faith in God while simultaneously hating God for abandoning his people. And you meet many evangelicals, they hit the bump and boom. Because who God is, they've they've put in this particular box. And in this section in the Gospel of Luke, we meet the same thing. We, We have a group of people who think they understand who Jesus is. In fact, they will use 
the titles he uses to mock him. Prophet, Messiah, Son of God. And we'll watch this as we go through it. And the very things that they use to mock him and deny who he is, bringing up false accusations, the irony is that's exactly who he is. And so watch the irony as we move through the text. We're first going to look at verses 63 through 65. And if you're following along in your notes, that's the first section here. It says, now the men were holding Jesus under guard and they began to mock him and beat him. Who were the men? They're most likely the brute squad, the soldiers who from the temple precinct, uh, these would be Jewish, most likely Jewish soldiers uh, under the temple precincts that came, arrested Jesus. You remember that squad? And they have been beating him. Now, the question is, where does this fall in the timeline? Because last week we looked at Peter's denial. Many scholars argue this is the backdrop. This is going on while the focus is over here uh, with Peter. And now we go back to Jesus. And it says, they were holding him under guard. They were mocking and beating him. Matthew and Mark's gospel tell us that they slapped him, they struck him, and they spit at him. So they give us further detail. And then they play blind man's bluff, right? They blindfold him and they ask him repeatedly, prophesy who hit you. They also said many other things against him, reviling him. There's a box there in your notes. And, and one of the hard things to figure out as you look at the four gospels, what's happening this night that Jesus is arrested? So I've kind of laid this out for you on Thursday, April the 2nd. AD 33 is the date I believe that we're looking at. Jesus is taken first to Annas, then to Caiaphas. We talked about them, correct? Caiaphas is the high priest. He's the grand poopa of Judaism in the first century. Annas actually was the high priest before his son-in-law Caiaphas. Annas is one of the most powerful men in Judaism at this time. The high priest in the first century was not obtained because you were from the tribe of Levi. It was obtained because you had the most money. You bought that position. So that tells you a little bit. In fact, many believe this. Um, if I take you to Jerusalem and go two stories underground, I can take you to a house from the first century. It's 11,000 square foot. It's enormous. This is first century. It's very ornate. And many scholars believe that's Annas's house. So you got Annas, you got Caiaphas, and then you were brought to the Sanhedrin, which we'll see here in the text. And then Friday, very early in the morning, the Sanhedrin will bring, that's that, remember, the, we'll talk about them in a second to review, but they'll take Jesus to Pilate to appear before the Roman governor. And eventually Jesus, of course, as you know, is crucified around 9 a.m. So th 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 all of this is happening very quickly. But let's go back and let's look at these soldiers that are beating Jesus. Ironic, isn't it, that they say prophesy? He just did. Go back to the text. Look at verse 61. Then the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said before rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. He just prophesied. It became a reality. It happened just as Jesus had stated. There's another irony in all of this by how Jesus is responding also is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Uh, Isaiah 50, listen to these words. The Lord God had opened my ear and I was not rebellious. 
I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. 700 some years before Christ, prophesying that this one who comes, the anointed one, is going to be beat. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hid their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. <laughs> Prophesy? <laughs> He's doing that right at this very moment, seeing that coming to fulfillment of the Old Testament. But he just did prophesy. In fact, he did that in, with the whole thing with Peter, which came to fruition. And it's interesting, throughout Luke's gospel, more than the, any of the other gospel writers, uh, Luke tries to draw this connection of Jesus with the prophets of old. They were rejected. <laughs> they suffered and they died. And that connection is once again highlighted here in Luke's gospel. The text tells us that they not only mocked him of this, but it says they said many other things to revile, these blasphemous things. Can you imagine? <laughs> these are the same guys who, when Jesus revealed who he was on that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did they do? They fell on their faces before the Lord. They're the same soldiers that saw Jesus heal Malchus's ear right there in their midst. And they're the same soldiers that heard Jesus state, now uh, take care of these disciples, my followers, let them go. They, they saw all this, they witnessed all of this, and yet they blaspheme? It's not surprising. What did Jesus state? Flip back to verse 53 of this chapter. At the arrest, Jesus says, day after day when I was with you in the temple courts, you did not arrest me. You could also argue these same soldiers heard Jesus teach. They were aware of miracles. In other words, they are not ignorant. They didn't, these aren't soldiers who didn't know who this Jesus was. They're fully aware of who he is. And it says, but this is your hour and that of the power of darkness. Who's in charge? Christ, not the soldiers. He said, uh, this is to fulfill what is intended for me to suffer. The soldiers then, it says in verse 66, when day came, the council of the elders. Now remember, this is the Sanhedrin. It consists of 72 men. Similar to our Congress, it was made up of two major Jewish parties. There were the Sadducees, and we've talked about them you know, they were sad, you see. Uh, you know, we've heard that line, right? They only held to the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in the supernatural. Uh, they were, their power came from their allegiance with Rome. They were very wealthy as a, as a group. And then the Sanhedrin not only was made up of the Sadducees, who controlled it at the time of Jesus, but also the Pharisees. They were the devout ones. Their, their power was through popularity. Everyone loved the Pharisees. I know you don't see that when you read the Gospels, right? Jesus' strongest rhetoric is for this group over here. But they were the devout ones. They were loved by the people. Uh, they certainly did not love Rome. And, and, but it's these two parties that control the, the, the most powerful organization in Jerusalem and Israel at the time of Jesus, the Sanhedrin Again, is their name. They're the council. And we're told the council of elders, look at the text, of the people gathered together 
both the chief priests and the experts in the law, and they led Jesus away to their council. So we've had Annas, we've had Caiaphas, they've done the dirty work trying to lay the groundwork so that we can bring him now to this group. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. <laughs> what a lame question, right? We'll get to that in a minute. And he says, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he answered them, you say that I am. And they said, we do not need further testimony. We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. Now, this is great. So we're going to unpack this because there's a lot of things happening here that you need to see that's so vital to the storyline. It's, it's full of irony. It just drips. So watch this as we go along. Uh, because you, the reader, are privy to things that obviously the religious rulers aren't seeing. And, and that's what we'll tease out of this as we go, go through the text. But let's, let's go back. Let's look at verse 66. And we're told the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes they're not seen together, but one other time in Luke's gospel. And in Luke's gospel, it's the scene where Jesus says, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things. Son of Man is the title Jesus uses most frequently of himself in the gospels. Suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. Be killed and on the third day be raised. That's in chapter 9. That prophecy is given and now it's being fulfilled as Luke highlights this band of uh, fellows, these elders, these chief priests and these scribes. And of course it, it's clear they're unaware of this prediction, but it's certainly coming to fruition. Now there's several problems with this text in light of what we know historically. Now let me fill you in. Alright, first of all the location. The Sanhedrin normally would have met on the temple grounds. That's where they held court, not in a home. It appears that this is at Caiaphas's house, uh, or they're brought to Annas. We don't know exactly, but the temple courts are closed at nighttime. So number one, that's a problem. Number two, it's the procedures. It was not a legal hour. It was done in haste. We know they bribed the witnesses, or Judas, for instance, uh, the, the one being accused should not have to testify against himself. The judicial use of the prisoner's confession, confession, conviction of capital crime on the same day was not tolerated in Judaism. If it was given, the verdict was to wait three days or at least one night. The high priest was to be the last to render the verdict. He's the first to render it in this scene. And failure to release the prisoner when the witnesses could not agree. All of this they did not follow. And some scholars will say, well, the problem is those procedural rules didn't really, they weren't codified until the second century AD, and they weren't around during the first century. I have a hard time with that. For instance, we know other rules were broken. The high priest was never to tear his garment. Remember what the high priest does when Jesus, Luke doesn't record it, but the other gospel writers do. The high priest tears his garment when Jesus says, well, you say that I'm the son of man, son of God, right? And that was verboten, but he does it. 
Some would argue, well, it's the nature of the situation, and that is Jesus is seen as a false prophet, a heretic, and all of the procedural rules go out the window. That could be, I don't think this is a trial. They know, and we're going to talk about this, under Roman law, they cannot kill him. They cannot execute him. Rome has to do that. So what are they trying to do? They're trying to get enough dirt on Jesus so that when we bring him to Pilate, Pilate says, yeah, he's guilty. Uh, I, I think that's what's happening here. So we're not following these guidelines. Schnabel, in his recent work on Jesus in Jerusalem, he makes this statement. I, whatever view you take, I think Schnabel's correct. Both the high priest and the members of the Sanhedrin who condemned Jesus to death acted in accordance with their theological evaluation of Jesus. He is a heretic in their eyes. He is a blasphemer. Whatever you want to say, that's their assessment, and that's why they got to take Jesus out. They didn't execute Jesus because he thought he was a nice guy. They, they wanted Jesus dead because he claimed to be the son of God. They understood it. So did the demons. <laughs> it's amazing how many people today don't seem to get it. They did in the first century. Even his enemies. And Schnabel goes on to state, and in accordance with their theological evaluation of Jesus, in accordance with their conscience, and in accordance with Je Jewish criminal law. They're moving in the parameters that I think fit with an interrogation in order to get the dirt, the data they need to take Jesus to Pilate. Charging him with blasphemy is not going to get him executed by the Roman governor. The Roman governor would say, oh, I, I, that's not in my jurisdiction. You deal with it. <laughs> we can't. Under Roman law, no provincial, provincial government can execute or pro carry out capital punishment. There's only a couple exceptions perhaps within Judaism or in first century Judaism, and that is if there was adultery or someone who, who disregarded the temple codes of where you where you to move, where a Gentile could enter, etc. That's the only two exceptions that appear in the history. And so they ask Jesus two questions, and let's look at this. They're trying to get the dirt. First question, if you are the Christ, tell us. <laughs> in other words, are you the descendant of David, the promised king that we have longed for? You realize if Jesus calls himself the Messiah, then they would have to confess his rule. They would need to bend his knee. And this is a problem for Rome. Right? You cannot have an insurrectionist. So they know if they can get him, Jesus, to say, yeah, I'm the, the promised king. Ah, we got him. We could, this will this fry him. The, you know, the irony here, again, is that Jesus, well, this, Luke answers this several times in his narrative, doesn't he? That Jesus is the Christ. He's referred to many times. And Jesus implicitly refers to himself as the Christ just a few days ago in a dialogue he had with the religious rulers in John chapter, Luke chapter 20. So the question is, are you the Christ? Well, let's just say it's, it's less than sincere, isn't it? <laughs> The religious rulers have been asking questions of Jesus since he was a teenager on the steps of the temple. How many times do you need him to answer you before you understand, yes, this is what he is saying. 
Their question does not stem from a desire for a fair trial. I love what one scholar states. He says the issue is not believing in him. The issue is condemning him. And again, what great irony because rather than them condemning Jesus, they are condemning themselves because they will not believe in Jesus. <laughs> wow. When I'm out and about and people ask, well, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm a pastor. It's interesting. <laughs> you get all sorts of responses. Oh, that's nice. Complete silence. Or you get, oh, I got a theological question for you. I've been waiting for this. In the book of Revelations, you know, and they add the S, which isn't there. I got a question. And inevitable, well, usually, you, you give them an answer, and it's very clear. They already have opinion. They're just hoping you agree with them, right? And that's what I feel with these religious rulers. They don't really care what Jesus says. They already have assumed that he is the false Messiah, that he's claiming to be king. And Jesus knows that. He knows the answer to their question, but he also knows the motive behind their question, doesn't he? And, and look what Jesus says. <laughs> I love this. <clears throat> he says, well, if I tell you, you will not believe. Another way to render this is if I reply... And if I'm not currently saying that I will or will not, you will not believe. In fact, he says, and if ask, you will not answer. It, it's, the strong, it's a very strong way to say it in the Greek. You, there is no way you're going to believe. You say, man, it seems a little harsh for Jesus to respond to those religious rulers that night. Careful. In John chapter, or excuse me, Luke chapter 20 we had a question on the authority of Jesus and Jesus threw it back to them and said, what authority does John the Baptist have? Remember that scene? Jesus had already confronted them and Jesus then says to those religious rulers just a few days before, why did you not believe him? Because if you believed him, you'd believe me. So why now do I think you would believe me? Because you're not gonna believe me. You've already made up your mind of what you think of me. And while Jesus did not prophesy with the soldiers, he does here. Because notice what he does. He said, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. This is loaded. In fact, Many scholars believe it's at this point, if you look at the other gospel writers, where the high priest tears his garment. And you say, why? Why are they having such a holy hissy at this point on this statement? Well, first of all, the Son of Man, it's clear, Jesus is referring to himself. It's a title, as I mentioned, he uses his most frequently. But notice what he says about the Son of Man. He will be seated at the right hand. Under first century Judaism, no one is next to God. No one. That's blasphemous. That you think you're at the right hand of God. The angels are the buffer zone. You, 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 you can't even get to God. How can you say this? Jesus not only indicates his position, but notice what he says, and of the power of God, his empowerment. Jesus is using two Old Testament references. It's not as clear as Luke because Luke condenses this. But if you look at the other gospel writers, it's clear. Jesus is quoting from Daniel 7. 
Daniel 7 says, As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Later, Jewish writings in the intertestament period says that Son of Man is the Messiah and him coming on the clouds is that to judge. So what is Jesus saying? You're here tonight to judge me. I'm coming and I will judge you. <laughs> that is not how to win friends and influence people. Especially when they want to kill you. Right? Jesus says, you think you're in control? I'm in control, and I'm going to judge you. <laughs> they, they had this Jesus in a box of what they thought he should be. He didn't measure up. They also had in a box what the Messiah should be. He didn't measure up. Jesus says, you've missed the mark. He's also quoting from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord here is David's Lord who sits at the right hand of the Father. The Sanhedrin, upon hearing this reference from Jesus, would know that Jesus was uh, claiming to be David's Lord as he is sitting at the Father's right hand. I mean, it's very clear what Jesus is saying. I, I'm, I am deity. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one. So you ask me, are you the Christ? You better believe I'm the Christ. In fact, so much so, I'm coming again and I will judge you. In great irony, the Sanhedrin is demanding Jesus to tell them if he is the Christ in order to condemn him, having unwittingly received a powerful prophetic revelation of how Jesus as the exalted messianic son of man is the true Christ and is implied from his illusion. In other words, they want to know if he's the Messiah. He just told them by quoting Daniel 7 in Psalm 110. It's loaded. And we could spend all afternoon dissecting this text in light of those Old Testament texts. They're not done. So they all said, are you the son of God then? Now you go, wait a minute. After that response, you should have known. No, I, I think they're sitting there going, did, did I hear him correctly? I remember my doctor father in Tübingen, Otto Betz. I, uh, my German wasn't great. And one day I thought, I'm just going to speak German to him. So we met and I started speaking German and he said something and I thought, oh no, I don't know what he just said. <laughs> this is a really important point. So I repeated it in English and he looked at me and started laughing. He said, I wondered how long it would take you. I said, yeah, <laughs> you're right. It's kind of this idea. Did, did we really just hear Jesus say what he just said? I think is the idea here. And the answer again is Yes. He is the Son of God. Gabriel told that to Mary back in Luke chapter 1. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, the Lord God. And he will, give you the, he will be given the throne of the ancestor David. What did the demons say? You are the Son of God. What did God say on the Mount of Transfiguration? My beloved Son. It's repeated time and time again in the gospel. This is God's Son. And I love Jesus' answer. It's very indirect. Jesus says that I am, or as you say, I am. Jesus not only courageously admits he's the son of God, but he draws the Sanhedrin into the same admission. You said it. <laughs> Don't you love it? Is he draws them in? Well, we see one more question. <clears throat> this one's rhetorical. 
verse 71. Then they said, why do we need any further testimony? It's done. We've heard it. In fact, the text tells us we've heard it from his own lips, his own mouth, which is ironic because back in Luke chapter 11, it says the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard, Jesus, and to provoke him to speak of many things, lying in wait to trap him as something might come from his lips or his mouth. <laughs> the phrase is used frequently in the book of Luke and in Acts to refer to prophetic utterance from the lips. And once again, we've heard him, as the Sanhedrin is saying, deliver it from his lips. And the, the text even says, we've heard it ourselves. That's very unfortunate because you know why? Now you're without excuse. You may not have heard the stories of Gabriel telling to Mary. You may not have heard of the story of the transfiguration, but you've now heard it from Christ himself. Ooh, ouch. Well, you would hope at this point they would repent, but verse 1 of chapter 23 is clear. Then the whole group of them rose up and brought Jesus before Pilate. Now next week, we're going to continue the journey of looking at this trial because Jesus is going to be shuffled to Herod Antipas and back to Pilate. But the first cog in this procession now as we move it to the Roman level is Pilate. And it says, notice the whole group of them rose up and did this. They are acting as one. And we're told they bring Jesus before Pilate. Pilate is the Roman governor at this time. Rome appointed him to have control over the area. He's not the first Roman governor. The mansion is not in Jerusalem. Uh, the, the governor's mansion is in Caesarea. Even today, Caesarea is gorgeous. It's the only place where there's a golf, car, uh, golf course in, uh, in Israel. Uh, they jokingly say, don't hit it too hard or it'll, be, it'll wind up in Jordan or Lebanon. But um, Caesarea is gorgeous. Why is Pilate in Jerusalem? He only comes a few times out of the year. It's for crowd control, for the Jewish festivals. And he's staying at Herod the Great's palace. And so he's there in control. Now you need to know something about Pilate. He's reigned from 26 and he will reign until 36 AD. He is most likely anti-Semitic. He has made several blunders already as governor. But his biggest albatross in light of the Roman emperor is who appointed Pilate as governor. You see, his patron, the one who helped him move up the ranks is a guy named Sejanus. You'll not find him in scripture, but you will in the history books. Sejanus was executed by the emperor in 31 AD for treason. Ouch. You, you, you really don't want that link if you're Pilate. Because the emperor, Tiberius, is taking out a lot of people for treason at this time. And the Jewish leaders know this. In John 19, it says when they think Pilate might release Jesus, they state, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. <laughs> Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. In other words, if you release Jesus, we are going to go to the emperor. And they had already. They already tattled on Pilate before. And we'll tell them you released an insurrectionist. They have Pilate right where they want him. Don't kid yourself. This is a very powerful group. And Pilate is in a real pickle here. 
And they began to accuse him, verse 2, of saying, We found this man, Jesus, subverting our nation, forbidding us to pay the taxes to Caesar, and claiming himself as Christ a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And he replied, You say so. And Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no basis for an accusation against this man. The Pilate, Pilate sees through all this. He, know, he knows this is a charade. He's already had three people he's going to execute. And those went through the proper trials and channels. You're not bringing a ringer at the last minute for me to throw up on a cross. No, it isn't going to work. But they persisted in saying he incites the people by teaching throughout all Judea. It started in Galilee and now it's ended up here in Jerusalem. <laughs> Under Jewish law, again, Jesus could have been executed for blasphemy, but the Jews' hands are tied. Capital punishment can only be done through Rome. Let's repeat that again. Though they tell Pilate, we did do our due diligence. It says in verse 2, we found this man. That term is loaded. We've done our investigation and elsewhere in John's gospel. It says, why are you questioning us? The religious rulers say to Pilate. We've already taken care of this. We already know. And they bring one major charge with several explanations. Look at the text. And what's the charge? He is subverting our nation, or he's perverting it. He's inciting the people. And how does he do that? The text gives us several reasons. First of all, he speaks against taxes, which is, you know, that, that's a lie. That's not true. Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. But this would certainly be a personal threat to Pilate and his superiors. They declare him to be a king. That's the next explanation of how he's perverting the nation. And that charge is one that gets Pilate's attention. <laughs> it's the only thing that he deals with when he, he comes back and says, are you the king of the Jews? Because <laughs> th that one, that's dangerous. That's serious. And none of that works. In verse 5, they raise two more. He, he, his teaching stirs up the people, and his teaching is spreading all over the nation, which is creating even further problems. Well, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? It's recorded in all four Gospels. Pilate is doing due diligence. It's normal judicial procedure to interact with the uh, accused privately. And again, from a political perspective, Roman perspective, this title is very dangerous and is worthy of being executed for. Remember, when Jesus is finally executed, there's a sign put above his head, which was normal for the crime that's been committed. And what does it say? He declare, he's declaring to be king of the Jews. That's not going to be tolerated by Rome, especially the emperor Tiberius, who's already been executing many people for treason. And Jesus says, well, you say so. It, it, it's a qualified aff affirmation because on one level, no. On another level, yes. Jesus' silence confirms his claim to divine dignity and it confirms the inevitability of his death. Jesus going willingly to the cross. They're all kind of pawns in the, in the chessboard as we move. Notice 
Pilate then says, I find no basis. The, the, the term, the, nothing is emphatic here. No way. I see nothing. There's no grounds for this. In fact, five times Jesus will be declared innocent during this trials. Pilate will declare him innocent three times, Herod Antipas once, and Pilate's wife will declare him innocent once. Pilate didn't listen to his wife. That was bad, right? That's a whole other sermon. Anyway, the gravity of the situation is clear as the religious rulers bring forth their charge. What do you do with this? That's a great history lesson. Thank you, Hafidetz. I... It was good to review what the text tells us. You step back and you look at how people are engaging Jesus in these final hours. I have three questions for us that are in your notes. First of all, do we truly see Jesus? The danger of following Jesus is viewing him through our own preconceived lens. I, I wrote down four five dangers of knowledge. I said the danger of knowing a lot about Jesus is that we may not know him. <laughs> Growing up, we had some friends of our family. She taught women's Bible studies till she was blue in the face. She knew the text inside and out. And yet she was having multiple affairs and then ended up divorcing her husband. You know, how can that be if you truly know Jesus? <laughs> you know a lot about him, but you don't know him. And I've mentioned my advisor at Aberdeen was agnostic. <laughs> but she knew the New Testament inside and out. She could handle the Greek better than most. But she didn't believe Jesus is God. The danger of knowledge based upon emotions and feelings creates a preconceived ideas of who is the Lord and how he should behave. That was the problem with the religious rulers. Oh, they believed in the coming Messiah. Jesus didn't fit the bill for them. Remember? Remember Luke chapter 4 when Jesus started his ministry at the synagogue and Jesus reads from the Isaiah 61 and talks about how the year of Jubilee is here. The, and, and what does it say? Oh, they rejoiced until Jesus said it. Oh, and by the way, he talked about God helping the Gentiles and then they wanted to kill him. The danger of knowledge of God is, can be shaped upon faulty theology Limitations and expectations set. The God that's often described by some describes Santa Claus or some benevolent grandfather or worse yet, an image found in their own mirror. The thought of God has been sterilized and neutered. He's a God without holiness, wrath, and judgment. Sin is passe. Atonement becomes needless. And the term hell is confined to the Victorian era. That's the danger of a faulty theology that leads to a faulty knowledge of God. The danger of knowing without personal involvement. Oswald Chambers said, the best measure of a spiritual life is not its ecstasies, but its obedience. And the danger of knowledge without implication. Understanding, what does this mean for me? One of the objectives that we would write in our syllabus as Bible profs is that they would grow spiritually. And I remember someone on the accrediting board said, well, how do you measure that one? I said, I can't. Well, you need to take it out. I said, no, no not taking it out. That's the ultimate goal. Of all I'm teaching them is some Greco-Roman background or what's the latest archaeological find. What good is that? 
our desires that we grow. It's, it's like, how do I know what a good red velvet cake tastes like? I've had a lot of them. <laughs> That's a lot of sticks of butter, but we won't go there, right? <laughs> the only way we can truly know who God is is first having a relationship with him, but spending time in the word, time in prayer, and time with the saints. Do we truly see Jesus? Second question, do we truly understand the love of Jesus? If Jesus truly loves us, then why do we grumble? Why are we discontent? Why are we fearful? Why do we distrust? He's in charge. He was in charge as he stood before the Sanhedrin. He was in charge when he stood before Pilate. He was in charge when the soldiers beat him. We need a people who find contentment in God. And sadly, we live in a day and an age where it's all about entitlement. Ugh. Drives me bonkers. Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember their response to Nebuchadnezzar? Listen to this. Oh, Nebi, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. Remember, they're supposed to bow down to the idols or they'd be thrown into a fiery pit. If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you've set up. Wow. Give me a generation like that one who says, nope, not doing it. I know my Lord. He may protect, he may see that I go through the fire, but I know my God. That's the God who stood before the Sanhedrin. And he says, I am the son of man and I will come and I will touch. In J.I. Packer's Knowing God, it's a great book. If you've not read it, it's again one of those top 10 in Christendom that you have to read. He has this poem. He says, Lord, it belongs not to my care whether I die or live. To love and serve thee is my share and this thy grace must give. If life be long, I will be glad that I may long obey. In short, then why should I be sad to soar to endless day? Huh, that's great. Recognizing what the Son went through on our behalf should result in divine, or de devotion and commitment. His plan is best. Just ask Peter. He learned it the hard way, but he learned. Jeremiah 29. For surely I know the, your, the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare, not to harm, to give you a future with hope. Do you understand the love of Jesus? Do you, do you see Jesus clearly? And finally, do we truly believe in Jesus? Our belief in the majesty of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ should affect our lives and our witness. I love Daniel 9. Daniel opens up the book of Jeremiah and he's smacked upside the head with his own sinfulness. But he also sees a sense of God's holiness and his majesty and his perspective changes as he moves into humility, Daniel does, and his desire to glorify the Lord. My last birthday, Lori, once again, it's an annual event, makes that red velvet cake. I took tons of photos of some distant relatives of mine in Germany wrote and said, hey, you know, their birthday is similar as mine. And said, this is the dessert we had. I said, oh, that's nice. Try to act excited. Let me show you mine. 
So I sold him a big piece of red velvet cake. You know, I, I wanted to share it with everybody. Wish I had blind to go around. Should that be how we're with the Lord and all that he's done for us? It's far better than even a Waldorf Astoria recipe. It, it, this is the son of God. This is the one who has redeemed us and willingly came and went through all of this for us. We have the opportunity to share with the world the one who is the son of man, seated at the right hand in the power of God. He is coming back because he is the son of God. He's our savior. He's Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, we come to you and thank you. Thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for how you love us so. Thank you for forgiveness. Lords, perhaps there's one sitting here this morning who doesn't know you. Oh, they know a lot about you and your son, but they've never placed their trust in you. They've never come to a recognition that they are a sinner, that there are things in their life in the past which is hindering a relationship with you. I pray that today they would bend their knee so that they can come to know you. Father, it's our desire, those of us who, who have a relationship with you because of your son. Father, we want to know you. What a day it will be to, to bask in your presence. Do rehearse the truths and look to the future. But Lord, the opportunity just to get to know you. No wonder we'll have all eternity for that is what it's going to take. <laughs> Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, because you loved us so. Well, thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.